The idea is that the ants have been working all summer and fall is coming. And what has the grasshopper been doing? The grasshopper has been fiddling away the summer, making music. And, you know, the fall is coming and there is no food for the grasshopper. And the grasshopper's hungry and he comes and he asks the ants for some food. And the ants say, no, <laughs> because you have fiddled away. There's a time for work and a time for play is this, is this moral of this fable. And I laugh at that because the grasshopper is clearly an artist. The grasshopper is producing something for the world, actually, has been doing that kind of work for the whole summer. People who have been listening to this music. This is my interpretation, by the way. And, and then the fall comes and what is recognizable to everybody the ants as work is having, you know, collected the the f food and stored it for winter and being prepared for that. But another aspect of the story that I think is funny is that they don't recognize that what the grasshopper has been doing is work, this creative work, music. And so there are these different facets of that story that I think are so perfect for this time, this where we are as a culture. We say that we value artists and writers and creative makers, but we don't really recognize their work or compensate them as such in the same way that we do doctors, lawyers. We recognize work in different ways, and we still prioritize and place a greater value on certain kinds of work. There's a lot of stories floating around right now on productivity and doing more. But lately, I've been interested in the art of doing less, sometimes even nothing at all. That means more downtime to read, lie in the grass, take a hike, go surfing, swim in the water, or just stare at the clouds or even out the window. This is not easy work for me, but I always feel refreshed and my mind feels so much more clear when I take the time to not do anything. Today's guest, writer Bonnie Tsui, thinks it's time we start questioning the desire to always increase our productivity and instead work more on the art of lying fallow. I'm Shelby Stanger, and this is Wild Ideas Worth Living. Like the fable she shared about the grasshopper and the ants, Bonnie believes that doing nothing is a kind of work. It allows us to refuel our creative juices and to mentally process and solve problems. She recently wrote a whole article about doing nothing for the New York Times. I found it really inspiring. The wild thing about doing nothing, well, there's much more than nothing that's actually happening. You're doing something really important, so don't feel guilty about it. We're going to dive deeper into this a little later in the show, but first, a little about Bonnie. Her first book, American Chinatown, A People's History of Five Neighborhoods, won the 2009-2010 Asian Pacific American Award for Literature and was a San Francisco Chronicle bestseller. She's been the recipient of the Lowell Thomas Gold Award for Travel Journalism, and she's the current recipient of the National Press Foundation Fellowship. She lives and surfs in the Bay Area near San Francisco, California, and she's a contributor to the New York Times and California Sunday Magazine. So before we dive into her theories about doing nothing, I wanted to talk to Bonnie about her background as a writer and a swimmer. She has a book about swimming coming out next year. I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about your background as a writer and as a swimmer. 
Sure, absolutely. First of all, thanks so much, Shelby, for having me on the show. I'm really excited to be here. We talked a lot, you know, before the show about um, a lot of these things that we're going to be talking about today. So I'm really excited to be here. First of all, I guess to introduce myself, I'm a journalist and an author. I guess I like to describe myself as a generalist these days because I really do follow where my curiosity has been taking me. And um, I've been a longtime contributor to the New York Times. I've written for them for almost 20 years now. I can't believe it. For many Many sections, so Sunday Review, Travel, the magazine, the International Edition, and even real estate. And this now defunct section called Circuits. It was a technology section. <laughs> I don't know if you remember it, but my first story for the Times was a big feature on handheld GPS devices in the outdoors. Um, and I don't know if. Many of our listeners may not be um, old enough to remember them, but they were larger than your phone. And it just makes me laugh to think about that we used to cart these around on mountains and stuff. That's so interesting. <laughs> well, I had a giant one in my car because I, oh, I, yeah. I go left when you say to go right. But <laughs> but I, you know, that is actually where I got my start. So then how did you get into swimming? So we're writing a book on swimming right now, and it incorporates some of the guests we've had, like... Kim Chambers and some other people. How did water become such an important theme in your work and why is swimming so important to you? Well, I think, of course, it starts with my parents um, and, and having grown up in water and swimming on the swim team and becoming lifeguards and, and just having the, the family connection to water where we as a family, we, we would spend time at the pool, we would spend time at the beach, and that was where... I mean, from a very personal standpoint, my parents eventually got divorced when I went to college. Um, but all of my memories, and perhaps this is upon retrospect, you know, reflection, looking backwards, but but the times in which we felt most whole as a family is water, and so mm. I think that can't help but affect how I think about water and how I feel in water, whether it's swimming or surfing or being at the beach or any kind of immersion. And so I think that is, in essence, where my origin story with water comes from. And your parents who had met in a swimming pool. That's so interesting in That's Hong right. Kong. Yeah. And so over the course of my life, I look at the the arc of my work and I do find that the stories and I would just keep coming back again and again to swimming in places, finding it when I would go to a new place, I'd find a place to swim or I would find a place to immerse myself somewhere and and then realizing, oh, this is something that I've been doing, not even thinking about it. Well, I think and, it's so interesting, though, that you started writing about your first book was about being Asian, which was such a good mm -hmm. book. And then you transitioned to swimming. Mm -hmm. But really, they're connected. Oh, sure. I mean, I think that, you know, the, the, the first book, American Chinatown, it was about how my family's first entry into this country were through these gateways in New York and San Francisco that were, were, again, like it's a personal story, but it is a much bigger story for a whole population of, of immigrants to America. And they came through Chinatowns, and it was their place of safety where people spoke the language, where there were services, and there was the support of a community. And we all look for that, and that is so relevant today. And so with swimming, again, it's it's this personal impetus, this personal story. It starts as something that is so meaningful to me, and yet it blows out to be something that is relevant to pretty much everyone because swimming, whether or not you call yourself a swimmer, 
it is part of your story. If you ask anyone about water and swimming, they may hate swimming. They may always have wished that they were a better swimmer. They may swim every day. They may seek out water wherever they go. It's There are varying ways of answering that question for them, but they will always have an answer. And you said even growing up as a kid, you felt at home at the pool. And part of it was the pool you swam at had kids that were different colors than just white. Yeah, yeah. I grew up in a town in Long Island that was pretty white, and I never felt very at home in the schools that I went to because there were not a lot of kids of color. And then the swim team, the club team that we swam on for for 10 years was in the next town, and it was very racially diverse, and we saw brown bodies and black bodies and all different kinds of backgrounds, and they came from all over Long Island. And we, you know, that was our home. That was the where my brother, my cousins, and I spent. There was a, it was our, it was a different way the world could look to us, and we found our community that way. And, you know, and, and because of the history of race in America, and specifically as it comes to segregation in pools, you know, we, it was a big yeah. deal to share a body of water with someone who was not you know, your skin color. And so that persists now. Um, and it's all really loaded. And these are some of the issues that I tackle in the book. But, you know, the history of swimming ability and who we think is a swimmer and who is not, I mean, that is very much tied to the history of race and segregation in America. What else are you writing about swimming? Like, Why is it so, besides, you know, being such a great equalizer and... right feeling like home to you, what else about swimming has been so attractive to you? You know, people kept asking me after that, like, what's your next book going to be about? And if I learned anything about writing books is that you have to really want to write the book independent of money <laughs> and everything else, because, it, you know, books are not efficient ways to make money. They take up a lot of time from a, from a time perspective, from a dollars per word perspective. Like, you have to want to be doing this book for mm. something other than that. And uh, certainly we all have to, you know, put a roof over our heads and feed ourselves. But, um, but the you know, having having this, this, this internal compass that tells you that you have to do this book no matter what, it's going to scratch at you and scratch at you until you until you bring it out into the world. Then you know that's you know it's a book that you that you that it should take the form of a book because a lot of ideas you have could be an article, could be an essay. Um, it doesn't have to be a book. But you know, when I started thinking about okay, if I ever do another book, I think it'll be about swimming. But what about swimming? What form could that take? You know, I mean, swimming obviously is a huge topic, and so it took me a few years of it sort of being on the back burner. Um, and just really kind of like worrying it a little bit and to figure it out, like to figure out what form it would take. And so what I ended up doing was calling it Why We Swim. And then the book structure is like five different ways that we can answer that question thematically. And and in order to answer that question, you know, I, t I visit and spend time with all kinds of swimmers and all kinds of communities around the world. You have Kimberly Chambers, who was one of the guests on this year's episode in your book. She is a, she is a singular human and such an extraordinary person and swimmer. And I was so 
I felt really privileged to be able to spend time with her. And she figures very prominently in the section of the book on well-being. And so health huh. and sort of recovery and just finding a new life through swimming. I mean, she didn't discover, I mean, as you know, that, that she had this superpower to be a long-distance swimmer until after she almost lost her leg in an accident. And so her story is really a great example of these big characters in the book. Um, another is a, an Icelandic fisherman who survived a six-kilometer swim in the dead of winter, it, and that's part of the survival section of the book. So wait, he, he survived? So he was out for a six-mile swim, or he was in a boat that capsized? He was in a boat that capsized, and everyone else died, and he swam six kilometers over six hours in, again, 41-degree water to shore off of the coast of Iceland. And he turns out his body fat is like more like a seal's. It's two to three times normal human thickness, and so he was able to keep his core warm. And he's had all of these, you know, he's been in the British medical journals, and he's had movies made about him, and he's just an extraordinary person as well. That's 3.7 miles in that. I mean, I swam one mile in 68, 8-degree water the other day and was freezing all day. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and you know, he came out of this swim not showing any signs of hypothermia. He was just a little dehydrated. <laughs> he sounds like a really fascinating yeah, fellow. Absolutely fascinating. It's so interesting because we did our first podcast of the year was about mindfulness in swimming. And we interviewed mm -hmm. a group of kids. They swim every day before school to the buoy and back after doing a mindfulness exercise. And this summer, mm -hmm. they're swimming the English Channel. And I'm injured right now. I can't run because I got injured by a stingray. Embarrassing. But now uh. it's healed enough where I can swim. And I, I only swam the other day because I couldn't run. But I went to the pool because I was scared of stingrays. Embarrassing. And I was like, how the heck am I going to swim back and forth 66 times to get to a mile staring at this black line. And I asked the guy next to me how he does it. And he's like, you just jump in and the mindless chatter will go away. And he was so right. After lap 66, I felt amazing. The thoughts were gone. My troubles dissolved in this chlorine pool. And I don't know, it's really cool because I, I think for you now, your recent story in the New York Times, which is about lying fallow, is about resting and I find that my brain rests really well when I swim. Yes, I think that that is absolutely why swimming is kind of a modern-day cure for all of this um, connectivity we have. It's the one of the last places we can escape connectivity. And when you're underwater, no one can find you. You're escaping the rings and pings of life. And it is a blessed break from that. Do you swim in the ocean or do you like the pool? What's your medium? I take it however I can get it. <laughs> so, you know, this morning, when I'm sort of back in my routine this morning where I go to the pool in the morning, first thing, after I get the kids where they need to go to school or camp or whatever, and I go to the pool and I swim. And I, and I have a a regular, you know, workout that I do when, when it's just maintenance, meaning it's maintenance for my body and my mind. And so there are other times where I'll swim with the master's swim team or I will go for an open water swim or I'll go surfing. But I have a default swim now that I do and I just do it without thinking about it because I want to let my brain float and be free and untethered and just go. The fact that you just said you let your brain float is so beautiful. I mean, there's something about water that's just so 
healing, it's unlike running. I love running. I love what it does to my serotonin in my brain. But there's something about swimming that's more calming and relaxing than anything else. And you're writing a book on this. Yes. And, you know, Shelby, you and I have talked about water being the great equalizer. And for all bodies, it is it buoys us. I mean, it really it it can take away a lot of the not just the literal weight, but the proverbial weight from our brains and bodies and that there's nothing that does that for us. Um, and it allows us the freedom. You know, I, I think about this a lot. Actually, I just saw this mo- this morning at the pool. I see, you know, people who are 70, 80 years old swimming in the water, turning underwater, diving underwater, swimming underwater to the ladder in a way that is not any different from the way they did when they were seven and eight. Mm. That they are just enjoying the way that the water feels in their bodies when they're just sort of spiraling around and goofing off. And it is, all you have to do is go to like a family swim at a pool any day of the week and you will see unfettered joy. And that's what we get from that. When we come back, we'll talk to Bonnie about lying fallow, what it means, what it is, and why we should all let ourselves do it a little bit more. Summer is the best time to get out and try something new or different. For me, I enjoy being near the water or in the mountains. Did you know that REI offers classes and guided trips all over the country? From paddling to climbing, hiking and campouts, there's something for everyone. What better way to spend a weekend than rock climbing in Colorado at sunset or taking a moonlight hike in the Smoky Mountains or even going stand-up paddling on a camping trip in San Diego? REI will provide the guides and connect you with the gear you need to create an epic summer moment. Experience more with REI and register at rei.com forward slash events. Back in July, Bonnie came out with an article in the New York Times titled, You are doing something important when you aren't doing anything. This idea of doing nothing, of lying fallow, it's one that really interested me, especially as a creative person who has to constantly come up with ideas from nowhere. So what is lying fallow? And why is Bonnie preaching its importance? So swimming, we talked about a little bit. It's it's sort of a, a form of resting in a way. It's an active form of resting. But you wrote this great piece in the New York Times that was the most shared article in the New York Times over the weekend about the art of lying fallow. What does lying fallow mean? Lying fallow, I see it as an active way of resting. So we talked about active rest, and it's a it's active input versus output. You know, we prioritize productivity to, you know, up the wazoo these days and hustle culture and just like you are not, if you're not producing, you're not worth anything. I mean, this is just sort of the messages that we're told day in and day out. And so with fallow time, I find as a creative person that you really just need to build into your daily work life or your weekly work life or your monthly work life, these cycles of like, it should be a part of your work cycle, that you have time to rest 
Um, but also, it's an, like we said, it's an active rest. It's that you're reading. You are getting um, experiences and stimulation from other places that will just amplify your ability to be a creative person and make work that is meaningful later on. And it is not wasted time. It's not a vacation. It's not the weekend. I think that if we are able to figure out how to integrate that into our work lives, not just our, you know, weekend lives, that 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 is a healthier way to be, a more balanced way to be, and will remind us why we do the work that we do and why it's important. So there was that great quote in your story in the New York Times by Ian Sohn, president of the digital advertising and marketing agency Wonderman Chicago. He wrote in defense of his vision of a healthy and humanistic workplace. He said, I never need to know that you're working from home today because you simply need the silence. I deeply resent how we've infantilized the workplace, how we feel we have to apologize for having lives, how constant connectivity, availability, or even the perception of it has become a valued skill. The idea of just doing less. I thought what Ian said in that post was so, he really said so eloquently what we all feel and want to have be normalized in work. I think that that we shouldn't have to explain that we need a day to be quiet or that we need to be working from home on this day or just switching gears and doing something else because we're not feeling whatever the work that is we're, we're, we're supposed to be doing that day. And I think that what Ian is saying is that he wants us all to trust that we will each do what needs to be done in order to be happy to do the work that we need to do. And it's really simple, actually, but we don't get that feeling that it's okay to do that very often. And so I've thought about how we maintain that ability for some time, right, because it only it has only gotten more of a pressure cooker in terms of publishing and media it is a constant churn there's a there's a 24/7 news cycle and then outside of that news cycle there's the social media churn that is always telling you the message is that you have to be producing at every moment because it's going to be replaced by again and again and again by something else and so what I, I kept asking myself, what is it that I want to be doing? Sometimes as writers, we try to think about something new to write. We think, we exclaim to ourselves, what hasn't already been written? Everything has already already been written about. And so in some, in some way, right? And so what can we contribute to the world? And it's not these constant cycle of hot takes and knee-jerk reactions that are sort of designed to inflame various branches of the population. It is, what can we offer that is a sustained worldview that is helpful, that, that somehow reminds us of what we are really looking for, and that's connection, and that's meaning, and that is just how to live a productive life. And these are the things that we all come back to when we slow down enough or unplug enough or take some time away from this constant barrage of inputs that aren't really useful to us. And so I kept thinking about 
what made me feel sane and happy in this world, and that is those are the times when I go swimming. I take a break to go swimming or I take a time to go walk or I just stare out the window for 20 minutes. And, and, and I started realizing that over the last year that I really gave myself permission to do that. I actually mm. schedule, I look at my day and I have spent, let's say in the morning I go for a swim and then I spend some time writing and then I go – you know, for a walk with a friend, and then I come back to my desk, and then I think, oh, now, because I feel like I have, I'm not in a, in a mindset to write, I will read. I will take this time to do something else because it is not useful to keep running on the treadmill when you're not producing anything and you don't feel inspired to do it. And I actually feel like the more I am more I give myself these little snippets of, of, of time to read or rest or just think, I am actually more productive. I have better ideas. When I get back to my desk, the writing comes much more easily. And I think, uh, uh, paradoxically, you know, after having kids, I have become way more efficient with my time because I know I only have a limited amount of it. And so I think, okay, so the pressure is on to make the most of that time. And I realized that uh, building in these little breaks actually makes me a more productive thinker. Yeah. I've. It's so weird. I did the same thing this summer where I have consciously said, I'm going to surf, run, or go swimming. And then I'm going to do my work. Because then once you've done that, your work, you do your work so fast. And you also, if you have a limited, for me, if I have a limited time to get my work done, I just get it done. I know how to do the work, but if I have mm -hmm. all day to do it and I'm staring at my computer and like trying to hammer out ideas, it's just awful and painful and doesn't really go anywhere. Yeah, and we know this. I mean, we know there have been countless studies on productivity and in the workplace and how many hours you work versus what it is that you are producing in all kinds of industries, you know. And so we know that, and yet the culture, the, the culture tells us, you know, we talk about hustle culture. The culture tells us that being busy is really important. Being busy makes you important. It makes mm -hmm. you seem important. And so when we, we've sort of bought into that. And I definitely feel like now is a time that everyone is starting to push back against it. <laughs> what are these principles of lying fallow? Because right now, I think there's this little digital vice that we are all guilty of using, the mm -hmm. phone. And when we're bored or we have some free time, we look at it. For me, right. I check Instagram. I've yeah. gotten better because I've done a million podcasts about like trying not to do that, but it's still there. So yeah. for you, what are these principles of incorporating lying fallow? And as someone with kids, you know, how do you help them incorporate those principles into their lives? Okay, so first off, we all are guilty of doing this, right? We're, we're all, the phone, these devices, they're very attractive. They bring everything we want into one device and we can read on it. We can talk to our friends. We can sort of live vicariously through all these different apps that we're talking about. Um, and, and it really satisfies our brains in a, in, a, in a way that nothing else does. But when we take a little time away from it, we realize that we're just, we feel much more relaxed. There is an agitation that comes from being on an electronic device. And I see this all the time in my kids. <laughs> and I'm going to tell you a story, actually, from my flight home yesterday. 
I was flying home from a work trip that I did to Hawaii. I know I was very lucky to be doing that. Awesome. But I was sitting in the window seat and I was looking out the window, as I love to do, because it is, I think it is one of the greatest joys of modern life that we can look out above 30,000 feet above the earth. And I was, it was the beautiful time of day, 30 minutes before landing, the sunset. And then I feel this tap, tap, tap on my shoulder. And it's the woman who is sitting across the plane from me. And she says, can you please pull down your window screen? And I said, oh, I'm looking out the window. And she said, you're looking out the window. I can't see my screen, meaning her iPad that she was watching. And so she got really upset and agitated. And her agitation reminded me of my children when they've had too much iPad time. (laughs) And I... I thought, this is crazy. Looking out the window, if she had taken the time to look out the window, this is what she would have seen. She would have seen that we're coming down over San Francisco. The sun is setting. It is glorious out. You know, we're we're flying over SFO. The planes are landing on the runway beneath us. We're flying across the bay. We're landing in Oakland. And just that... Those inputs, that marvel, that joy, that wonder is the thing that feeds us and makes us able to keep going. You know, just like altering of perspective, like profound reminder of who we are and how minuscule we are on this planet. And I wish I could have said to her, like, you know, you have your screen and I have my screen. I just wish that I had had the wherewithal. Your screen is the world and hers is a little device. But I think that's such an important point because I was talking, I was telling someone what the podcast was about this morning. They're like, you know, I think so often the reason why we don't live follow is because we have these devices, these phones Mm -hmm. or iPads or screen. The minute we're bored, I go for Instagram. Yeah, and it's competing for our attention every point in time. And you never feel better after looking at your device, but the feeling you get after lying in open grass, looking at clouds, or maybe it's the sand, looking at waves, there's something so sensory and beautiful and stimulating about it that it leaves you feeling recharged rather than zapped. Yes, yes, absolutely. You have more energy, not less. You have more resources internally to draw on. You're highly driven. I can tell. You went to really good college. You're a journalist. You got into the New York Times. How have you had to work against your own ant-like tendencies to make space for doing nothing? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, sometimes I lie in bed and my brain just like keeps it just keeps going and i just you know i've had periods of insomnia in my life and i know that it's just like that's ha- that's where my ant like tendencies like manifest themselves like they won't let me go to sleep cuz they're just constantly thinking about things and how i know that i'm pushing myself too hard is when i can't sleep mm. and so how i have basically treated my insomnia over the years is to allow myself to have it. Basically, like, I used to worry about it all the time. I used to think, like, what can I do? Do I need to take, like, sleeping pills or something? You know, just I, I don't know what what's happening. You know, people talk about cognitive behavioral therapy and all this, and that helps. But what happens now is that if I have a night where I can't fall asleep, I kind of run towards it. I kind of mm. let it happen to me because I know then the next night I'll be really tired and I'll go to sleep. But You know, part of the anxiety of insomnia is that you don't think that you're ever going to sleep again and you're not going to fall asleep. And, of course, the more you worry about it, the less you sleep. 
And I started, it's basically like accepting that, okay, this might be a night that I don't sleep that much. And that's okay. And I let my brain kind of go. And actually, it that's how I solve it. That's how it it goes away. And I feel like this thing with, the, you know, my own ant-like tendencies to, you know, work too much or do too much, like that's my signal that I'm doing too much. And then when I'm in bed and I'm unable to sleep, I, I recognize that that's happening and I accept it. And then I let myself have some time. I let myself have the time to sleep right then. And then I realize like going forward into the next, you know, week or two that I have to like take a break. I have to give myself more space. That's really kind to yourself and smart that you're leaning into the acceptance of what might not happen. And then it kind yeah. of goes away. It's interesting. The hustle culture sort of encourage us to think doing nothing is failing. Yeah. How do we break that? I mean, I admit that I also feel that way. You know, I if I don't have something out or I, I see that other people are doing things because you know what? They always are. <laughs> you are in a world. We live in a world with other people in it. And, you know, if you are looking for someone to make you feel that you're not doing enough, oh, there's plenty of people out there to, to make you feel that way. Um, you just can't look for it. You can't let yourself... Do that, and I think that I know it's it's easier said than done. But part of it is then limiting your social media diet. Like I try really hard to do that because I know I don't like who I become, who I feel, what I feel like. I feel less generous when I feel again like the effects of like going on different social media and, and it's just feeling like you're not doing enough. I mean, and that's what it's sort of designed to do to you. Mm. And I again, like I am slow in this but I like I try to recognize it and I try to know that that's what's happening and and try to do something about it you're not even on Instagram are you I'm not on Instagram you know why I'm not on Instagram it's because I know that if I get on Instagram I'm gonna like it too much that's why it's brutal yeah (laughs) it's the worst one what do you do for downtime you said you swim I swim I surf I you know I take the time with my kids and of course that's a particular kind of work and kind of exhaustion too but it's a way to switch gears and what I try to do is be as completely focused on the one thing at a time as possible because nothing feels worse than trying to do everything at once and failing miserably at all of it so it whether it's playing a card game with my kids or going just being at the pool with them, I really try not to do something else at the same time that I'm supposed to be paying attention to them because then nobody wins and I just feel terrible about myself and so do they. <laughs> well, this is good. So, so like playing a card game, I think, is a really cool analog activity to do. That's in some yeah. ways resting. A board game. It is. Maybe it's a walk. Maybe it's lying in the grass or a park or on the beach in the sand and just watching clouds or waves. To me, that's the ultimate Mm -hmm. rest. Yeah. Yeah. And when I, and this week I was sitting, I was sitting on a beach and I was watching the waves come in and I thought I could sit here for hours because there's something about that, the sound, I wasn't hearing anybody talking. I wasn't being distracted by too many other people competing for the, the, the space that I was in. And it was, there's something incredibly 
replenishing and restful about that. And you, it's, I think uh, I have, I have heard this term called soft fascination, where your eyes, your your brain is taking in the inputs of. There is some stimulation. It's not that you're sitting in a in a in a room that is completely independent of any stimulation, but you've got something that's sort of occupying your attention, whether it's swimming in a pool or watching the waves. And then there is another part of your brain that's just kind of, it's allowing your focus to drift elsewhere in a way that actually your brain is working and making connections without you are thinking about mm. it. And it, it's because you sort of relaxed your, you have a soft focus on something that is stimulating, and but not too stimulating. And so your attention it's, I guess, for want of a better word, it's soft. It's but it's doing something else. Your brain is doing something else. It's making connections in the background, and then you come out of that and you realize you've solved a problem. And I think that that is really such a great way to recognize that we are doing things when we don't seem like we're doing things. So, any tips on how to actually be a little bit more still and? you know, avoid the hustle bustle? I mean, I think that you have to be, it's a very conscious thing. It's like meditation. It's hard, right? You sit there and you're supposed to sit still and you're supposed to just feel where you are and where your body is in space. And now, I I mean, this is something I talked about in the piece, but it's funny how meditation, which is supposed to be not for anything really but yourself, has become a life hack for being more productive, (laughs) Um, like everything in our world. Um, But that it's something that you have to actively try to incorporate. And I know it's really hard. It, it, It can look different for different people and different professions. But I think that it is just really necessary to allow yourself to take that time to do that. Because we're just going to continue to burn and burn and burn until there's nothing left. Any last piece of advice on the art of lying fallow? What can we all do or take away from it? What message do you want people to take away from this concept? Let yourself do it. I think part of the problem that people run into with lying fallow is that they don't give themselves permission to do it. It's okay to not do something for an hour an afternoon, a day, what you're quote-unquote supposed to be doing. And, you know, you'll find that if you let yourself do it the next day, you'll come back to your work and your life remembering why it is that you chose to do that in the first place. And I think that is really essential. Do you have any mantras or lessons in life that you've lived by that have just helped you? maybe about lying fallow or advice you can give to listeners who want to incorporate more fallow time in their life, but also want to live more wildly? I think give yourself permission to do it. You know, the world isn't going to give you permission to do it, so you have to take it. It's hard to give yourself permission to do nothing, especially with the demands of daily life today. Reading a book, wandering through your neighborhood, sitting at a park and people watching. These things are often seen as leisure activities, but they can be so refreshing. 
So now that we're in the height of summer and it's coming towards an end, I hope you find an afternoon to slow down, give yourself space to think, to watch, to find inspiration and just get ideas. Or as Bonnie would call it, to lie fallow. Thank you to Bonnie Tsui for coming on the show. You can find Bonnie's work in the New York Times, California Sunday Magazine, or on her website, bonnietsui.com. That's B-O-N-N-I-E-T-S-U-I.com. And you can follow Bonnie on Twitter at Bonnie Tsui. That's Bonnie T-S-U-I. This podcast is produced by REI with help from Annie Fassler and Chelsea Davis. Tune in week after next as I talk to a filmmaker, adaptive athlete advocate, and a previous contestant on The Bachelor about finding love, including self-love. As always, we really appreciate when you subscribe, rate, review, and make, of course, a funny name wherever you listen. And remember, some of the best adventures often happen when you follow your wildest ideas. <laughs>